This is 112BK coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn. On the show today, a community copes with vandalism at two Brooklyn mosques, the state of local reporting post-Gotham and DNA info, and are too many volunteers giving too much time on Thanksgiving. Hi, I'm Ashley Ford. Thanks for joining us today. You know, every day it seems there's a new allegation of some prominent man in business, politics, or media who has taken it upon himself to be sexually inappropriate with a woman. Al Franken, Russell Simmons, and even Charlie Rose have been recently accused. Sometimes I wonder, why so many? Then I remember these men have had every reason to believe they wouldn't be caught or held accountable for their actions, up until now. Right after I moved to the city, a man on the subway pinned me to a door and put his hand under my dress. It was a terrible and traumatizing experience, but the thing I recall most was the incredulous look on his face when he realized someone had called the police. He said, you're gonna bring the cops into this? Back then, I didn't understand why he thought he wouldn't get in trouble or why he'd assumed I would just take it and say nothing. Now I understand, like so many of us do. He didn't have a reason to think it would go any other way. My sincere hope is that that's changing and that justice will be served for all the women they considered disposable. Coming up on the show, mosque vandalism in Brooklyn and a spike in hate crimes, the state of local journalism, and soup kitchen volunteering. But first, these things. The Trump administration has decided to end the temporary protected status for Haitians. The status was offered in the wake of the island's devastating earthquake in 2010, and it allowed thousands of Haitians to come to the U.S. and seek work. After several extensions, TPS had been set to expire in January. But after receiving another extension request from the Haitian government, the Department of Homeland Security has recommended it end in 2019. At that point, the roughly 60,000 Haitians living here under this status will be subject to deportation. And even though this last extension has been granted, people aren't happy, including individuals in this community and members of Congress concerned that Haiti is still unable to cope with such an influx. You might have heard about the Brooklyn police captain who in January said he wasn't too worried about a spike in reported rapes in his Greenpoint precinct because they weren't str true stranger rapes. Only two out of 13, in fact. And he felt good about that. I'm with him on stranger rapes. Those suck, but so does any rape, acquaintance rape or otherwise. And news bulletin, they're all illegal. Anyway, this captain, Peter Rose, is getting promoted on Tuesday to deputy inspector. Back in January, Jane Manning of the National Organization of Women put it well, if you have the commander of a precinct making comments like that, he's setting a tone for all the officers of a unit about how seriously to take acquaintance rape cases. News at our front door, there's a bus lane right outside on Fulton. But when you pass Lafayette heading to Clinton Hill and beyond, the bus lane ends for parking spaces and traffic congestion begins. So there's a proposal to extend the bus lane for about a dozen blocks. The buses that drive this route carry about 20,000 passengers a day who welcome this news. Who wouldn't? Well, that's an important question. Lori Cumbo, the district's council member, opposes it. Why? because these dozen blocks are dense with retail, and she's expressed concern that the lack of parking would hurt them. This position has not been popular, with some saying she's siding with a minority of parkers over the public transitors. 
The New York Cosmos have had an on-again, off-again, on-again relationship with the city for quite some time. They were the team of Pele and Beckenbauer in the 70s. They folded in the 80s with the rest of the league, only to resurface in 2013 in the U.S.'s second-tier soccer league and made their home right here in Brooklyn. Didn't you know? Now, for a lack of teams, that second-tier league could also be on the verge of collapse. But a couple of Brooklyn-based officials are trying to save them, namely Chuck Schumer and Eric Adams. They say they bring revenue to the borough, not to mention excitement. Yes, they were in this year's finals. So what if they were only competing against seven other teams? Coming up, with incidents of hate crime on the rise, Brooklyn copes with the vandalism of two mosques. On Monday, House Democratic leaders in Washington called for a hearing into hate crimes in America, which, according to the FBI, increased about 9 percent from 2015 to 2016. Early this month, hate crime was on the minds of many in Brooklyn, when an as-yet-unknown assailant vandalized two mosques in Sunset Park. NYPD's Hate Crimes Unit is investigating the incident. As Brooklyn's, as Brooklyn's Muslim community copes with this attack and the general unsettling environment made fertile by our country's highest elected official, we welcome Marwa Janini of the Arab American Association of New York. Thanks for coming into the studio. Thank you for having me. Can you just tell me how did it feel for you when you heard about the vandalism of these mosques? Um, to be frank, I was uh, a bit surprised. Mm that this happened at Beit al-Maqdis in Sunset Park, especially in Brooklyn, given that we are a very diverse community. Mm -hmm. um, and I haven't heard uh, any attacks recently before uh, the vandalism right. um, happening at, you know, the Sunset Park community or um, the Bay Ridge community, mm -hmm. um, especially that, you know, we, you know, we're very, as the Muslim community in Brooklyn, mm -hmm. uh, we're very active. Right. So it, it took me, you know, by surprise, um, especially that uh, it appeared to be someone of Asian, East Asian descent. Mm. Um, but it, it, it was uh, a bit hurtful. Right. So what do we know so far about the attack? Like, we know it happened. We know, I think, that it was the same person at both mosques, correct? Yes. So, what else? So um, this person... I mean, from from what I know, where um, he broke a few windows, uh, broke one of the cameras, um, and right after that, he went to Fatih Kami Mosque. Um, that's all we know. I don't know if they found him. Um, I know they're ruling it as a hate crime, yeah. um, but I mean. We don't we don't know the details of what's what's coming coming forward. How's the community reacting to this? So we have uh, as part of the Arab American Association of New York, we have mm -hmm. an adult education program that um, runs at Beit al Muqdis for the last three years, mm -hmm. um, and there's roughly around um, a little more than a hundred students mm -hmm. um, that attend the town hall, the community center, part of this mosque. And uh, I actually spoke with um, one of the adult education instructors and women organizers and. She said that some of the students um, stopped attending immediately after wow. um, the, the vandalism. Why would they stop attending? Is it the fear? Definitely fear. I mean, when you think of a mosque, when you think of any um, faith centers, you think of a mm -hmm. safe space, you think of safety. 
Um, so it, it was a shocker for, for the community. And I, I know vandalism, you know, this is something that occurs. Mm -hmm. um, it's something that happens, but uh, it comes in different forms. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there, there's been a lot of attacks on Muslim, given that um, our current president has been le less sensitive right. uh, to our community. But uh, it's, it's definitely the fear, the yeah. fear that this might happen again. Right. You know, it's, it's a very real thing. Does this feel like the climate is changing? Are you worried about more hate crimes? That's something that we, um, it, it could happen. It's something that's very real. It's something that it's existent. Um, mm -hmm. But I mean, yeah, I mean, there's something that we need to be very uh, cautious about, right. um, vigilant. And this is what we tell um, our students. This is what the advocacy department at the AAA and Y, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, we do these workshops um, for our, you know, clientele. And mm -hmm. we tell them, like, you know, about their rights, their basic rights, um, you know, what to do when, you know, God, heaven forbid or God forbid that something does happen. Um, who do we call first? Um, and that's something that we want to implement. Like if there's a you know a community leader that's always um, available mm -hmm. for you know the community members, and that's what Triple A Y is about. Right. Um, you know, at the forefront of any any attack or any any issues with the community members. Right. And how have your non-Muslim neighbors responded? Are you seeing some support, or are you hearing mostly silence? Like, are people coming to your aid? How's that going? Honestly, I was very um, proud to see at the press conference we had, you know, Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams, mm -hmm. we had uh, rabbis, we had um, pastor, we had uh, Reverend Khadr al-Yatim present, and it really made me feel the support, and not only that, just to see the inclusiveness in um, the mm -hmm. Brooklyn uh, community. So from, from what I've seen at the press conference, it, they weren't silent. Right. They stood with us in solidarity, and that's what we need. Mm -hmm. um, and that's very important to have in, in the community. As far as neighbors are concerned, we do get a lot of support at AAA and Y. Mm -hmm. um, you know, even immediately after the elections, we, we got a lot of support, especially, you know, I'm the immigration program manager at AAA and Y. So, uh, you know, we did, we did receive a lot of calls, mm -hmm. a lot of questions. Um, people want to volunteer at the organization, and this goes for both Muslims and non-Muslims. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And I know that, like, hate crimes in general um, don't necessarily always happen to a building or yeah. an organization. Um, quite often they happen to individuals. If something happens to someone, where do they go? Who do they talk to? How do they find recourse? I mean. I, I know that you want to go to the police, obviously. Yeah. You want to report it. But there's probably also a need for like some, just like some support and somebody to talk to. Right, absolutely. Yeah. And that's what the, the Arab American Association in New York is all about. Yeah. Um, and that's why we've expanded our advocacy um, and youth programming. Uh, we, you know, whenever there's an issue, whenever um, someone in the community has, you know, either arrested mm -hmm. um, without cause or um, dealt with any hate crime, we want them to know that they can come to us. Does that happen? That people get it, arrested without cause? It does happen, um, but it's not something that we see, uh, you know, sometimes the client or the, the person that comes in or the walk-in that comes in doesn't really want to share. Right. Um, what happens uh, to them. Sometimes right. they remain silent because of fear. 
and they mm -hmm. just brush it off. Um, I can tell you personally, I've you know I've dealt with a, a you know discrimination as a mm -hmm. visibly as a visible Muslim, um, and it does happen. It's something that's very real that we have right. to that, that we're dealing with, but we don't have to deal with. Right now, as a non-Muslim. If I'm walking down the street or I'm in some situation where I see someone harassing another person um, for being Muslim mm -hmm. or for looking like they might be Muslim, mm -hmm. because you know people think they can spot a Muslim-like yeah. person Absolutely. a mile away, how can I be useful in that moment? How can I be helpful to that person? Because that's something that, you know, I think a lot of people in the moment when they don't do something, it's, I, I don't know what to do. I didn't right. know what to say. Yeah. What can they do? So something that we, me personally, like I, it, it hurts me to see bystanders, mm -hmm. right? Um, we wanna make sure that the person that's, you know, feeling hurt or some, if they're in critical condition or anything like that, um, to make sure that they're okay. Right. To be there for them, just to know that they have that support. Mm -hmm. um, you know, whether Muslim or non-Muslim, but it, it comes off very um, supportive when it's from a non-Muslim as well. Yeah. Because a lot of the times, you know, even in the subways, when, you know, um, folks are saying, you know, discriminatory statements or biases mm -hmm. um, to Muslim women or, or women who are veiled, um, you know, and people don't say anything, they just walk by. Right. Right. So, so we need that. We need more people where they can actually, you know, help prevent or stop mm -hmm. um, the person from continuing um, the hate speech. Right. Well, Mama, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank I really so appreciate having, you for having this conversation. Me. Thank you so much. Next, the state of local journalism in the city with two local journalists. Yes, there are still some left to talk about it. When DNA Info and Gothamist were shuttered earlier this month, the city lost 26 local reporters. And that may sound like a small number in a big city, but it's not. That's city council hearings that won't get the same coverage, land disputes that will be ignored, corruption that will stay in the shadows, and many other stones that will remain unturned. But there are still, yes, still, some local reporters in the borough, and they're picking up the slack. We have a couple here with us today. C. Zawadi Morris of BK Reader, welcome to 112 BK. Thank you. And Scott Inman from the Brooklyn Eagle, thanks for being with us Thank today. You. So, can you just tell me really quickly, either of you, actually, you know what, we'll start with you. Okay. How did you react to the news that DNA Info and Gothamist had been shut down? I'm very surprised, but at the same mm -hmm. time, I wasn't. Um, yeah. I knew and I understood that some of the bigger corporate models that were doing hyperlocal were um, challenged with profitability mm -hmm. and um, coming from uh, working at Patch, which had the same problem, they shut mm -hmm. down during the time that I was the editor with them, um, I knew that it was an ongoing issue. I knew yeah. that profitability and sustainability was an ongoing issue in the industry in general. So right. I How wasn't surprised. I certainly thought it was unfortunate that it occurred, but mm -hmm. if the owner of Gothamist and DNA Info had given them, you know, a heads up that if you guys do decide to unionize, that you know this will pro this right. route will probably be taken. But so as unfortunate as it was, it's just time for other publications in Brooklyn to kind of mm -hmm. pick up the slack, and there are a handful of them that are willing and able to do it. What do you think this says about local reporting or local media in general? I think it's a difficult 
section niche of journalism to get into. You know, mm -hmm. the larger, more national papers um, have a lot more to cover. Um, but local, hyper-local journalism is necessary. Right. Should we be concerned about what happened at DNA Info and Gothamist? Like, is that a thing that we should be concerned about on a ground level for reporters? Um, to the extent, I think so. Mm -hmm. uh, to the extent that I think we need to use it as a teachable moment. Mm -hmm. um, I think there are things we need to learn from um, how to run a hyperlocal, what's needed to sustain it, um, why did it shut down exactly, and mm -hmm. moving forward for hyperlocals, um, what makes sense? So I, I think so. I mean, I, I think the biggest lesson that people are learning that's taken a while is that local doesn't really scale. Mm -hmm. And just um, by the nature of what local is, being a, a granular news model, uh, trying to standardize it through corporate practices doesn't right. really work. It's They're trying to retrofit it into something that doesn't really work. That doesn't work at <laughs> yeah. all with the, you know, and there are disputes. Some people are saying like that it, it was a petty move and that it wasn't about the profit, the profitability mm -hmm. of these news organizations at all. You know, at least that's what some people are saying. And others are saying, you know, this is a bad move because it's telling people not to unionize and that if you unionize, there will be repercussions. How do you guys feel about that? I mean, I can't really talk about union, unionizing, but going back to your last question, you asked mm -hmm. if it was a problem. Yeah. Uh, I think, I'm, an, I'm very optimistic, and I think um, there are a handful of really quality local community publications, like the Brooklyn Eagle, for example, or the only mm -hmm. daily paper in Brooklyn. We've been under that name since 1841. The right. Brooklyn Paper comes out weekly, um, Brooklyn Reader, Brooklyn, Brooklyn Inc., um, Patch, like you said. There are a lot of other mm -hmm. quality, hyper-local publications out there. So while it's unfortunate that those two kind of bigger giants fell, there's still a lot of good local journalism to go around. Good. Are we going to miss anything because they're gone? Like are you, like are we worried about that with 26 local reporters no longer around? Like are we worried about stories that won't get told or do you think that these other organizations are absolutely just going to fill the void like your organization specifically? Well, I always say, um, and I've said this a few times, that you know one of the things that we learned in eighth grade physics is that energy is never lost; it's just transferred. Mm -hmm. And so, I definitely think that all of that was left behind from um, the bigger uh, hyperlocal organizations are going to be caught um, by us. So, this is an opportunity. It's a growth moment. It's um, a great chance for us to kind of rise to the occasion. And I think it was meant for us. It was yeah. meant for the smaller indies. Are you guys working on any stories right now that you're really excited about? Um, well, I, yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, in my community, because uh, we cover Central and East Brooklyn, mm -hmm. um, in my community, one of the oldest uh, community development corporations, um, which is Bedford Stuyvesant Restoration Corporation, they celebrated their 50th year anniversary mm -hmm. this year. And um, they're making some changes for the next 50 years. They're very interesting changes, exciting changes, and um, I'm going to be telling that story very soon. Good. Yeah. Fantastic. How about you? I'm working on two stories at the moment. One that just came out yesterday, another that I'm working on that I'm really excited about. Mm -hmm. um, one is more sports-oriented with the New York Cosmos, who are one of the most storied franchises in, in American soccer history. Pele played for them. And they're actually, like everyone across the world knows them, and they're running the risk of not being around next season oh, uh, wow. based on this league, the North American Soccer League, and the Cosmos playing Coney Island. Um, we just and, talked about that in our headlines. That's very interesting. Yeah, they, they play in Coney Island, and they, I mean, they 
have created so many jobs for Brooklyn. I mean, people come out every every time they have a game, and they're running the risk of potentially not being here next year. So wow. Chuck Schumer and Borough President Eric Adams have come out and asked the United States Soccer Federation to kind of keep them around. You know that this mm -hmm. is going to hurt soccer in America. It's going to hurt Brooklyn. It's going to hurt the jobs. Um, so that was like the first time really that big politicians have got involved in soccer and in a sports kind of way in Brooklyn, mm -hmm. and that was really interesting to me. That sounds interesting. I'm actually a little bit of a soccer fan, but we don't have to go into that today. <laughs> I just want to say thank you guys so much for coming on and for talking about this, and hopefully we can have you back soon to talk about some of these really interesting stories. I'd love that. Thank you. Come through. Next, Thanksgiving with the emphasis on giving with the executive director of Chip's Soup Kitchen and Shelter. It's turkey season, and for most of us, that means elaborate meals and gatherings with friends and family. Key phrase, most of us, because it also means heightened awareness of food insecurity in our community. The holiday draws an influx of volunteers to soup kitchens, but what does that mean for the rest of the year when the same problems persist, only without the same awareness? Here to talk to us about soup kitchens, volunteers, and serving the underserved in Brooklyn is Denise Scarvella from Chips. Thanks for joining us on 112BK. Thanks for having me here. So tell me, what is the usual experience at CHIPS around the holidays with these influx of volunteers? <sighs> and, and volunteers as well as people dropping off donations. Mm -hmm. So CHIPS um, is very unique because we do not have big government grants. We don't have a whole lot of support in that regard. It's really supported by the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. It's mostly all donations and volunteers. Mm -hmm. The holidays, they come out in droves. Yes. Yeah, they do. Yep. This morning, I had a local DC9, a union came. We said, mm -hmm. come after one, because our busy time of a hot meal is 11.30 to one. Mm -hmm. Well, they came at 12.30. And at 12.30, they came with three truckloads oh. of food, and they just started bringing, and it was feast or famine. It was insane. Yeah. It was $4,200 worth of groceries. Wow. And it's a blessing. Yes. And it's two days before Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. But it's yeah. all coming at once. Com at once, yeah. So... What would you say to people who only really think to do these things at one time of the year? Yeah, well, I, I tell everybody. Yeah, <laughs> yeah tell everybody. I tell everybody who calls and says, oh, I'd like to volunteer to you. I say, you know, we really need you all year long. We yeah. really need you. We exist only because of your help. So, yeah, you try to steer them in that direction. You know, come January, come February, mm -hmm. um, even the schools, and, and they're pretty mm -hmm. receptive because I understand around this time they're, you know, on their curriculum, they're teaching the kids about service and everything, and, yeah. and I do understand it. And I say, you know what, you could do something really nice mm -hmm. at this time and talk about it, but plan to bring it after the holidays. Right. What's the difference, do you think, in a day, like with volunteers showing up between a regular day, let's say a a June 22nd versus Thanksgiving. Yeah, it, there's really no comparison. Yeah. There isn't. But we're, like I said, very fortunate. We have a steady group every single day. We see Good. about 140 volunteers a week. Good. Mm -hmm. So, And that's pretty steady. Mm -hmm. 
Unfortunately, sometimes they want to go home at 1 o'clock when the meal is over, but we still need to clean up until 4 p.m., right? right? So, but um, we're, we are fortunate. Chips is very lucky that it's been in the neighborhood so long. People know us. Mm -hmm. We have all kinds of volunteers coming in and out of there. Mm -hmm. On Thanksgiving and the weeks leading up to Christmas, it's a lot more people. Right. Yeah. How did you get started in this? Uh, I, I have a wonderful story. I'll yeah. try to make it short, though. <laughs> but um, I was a single mom, mm -hmm. and I was working in nursing, and I was working two jobs, one to pay the live-in and one to pay the bills. Mm -hmm. And at some point, I was fortunate to get an interview with someone who was working for Ed Koch when he was the mayor. Mm -hmm. I came in as his assistant, and when Ed Koch was leaving office, my boss was leaving to uh, run homes for the homeless. Wow. And I went with him, and I was there for 20 years. So I was kind of in the right place at the right time when homeless families became the city's responsibility mm -hmm. in 1987. Uh, we started with Homes for the Homeless, and I left in 2007. I uh, then went on to uh, become a nutritionist mm -hmm. and have a private practice. Someone called and said, there's a nun in Park Slope. She has this little shelter and soup kitchen, mm -hmm. and she's retiring. She's looking to interview people. So I looked up on the 990s, see how much money I could ask for. Right. There was nothing on there because there were nuns. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I was like, sense. okay, maybe I could volunteer or do some board work or something. Right. I had so many years of really going from a very gray area mm -hmm. um, before the cities had contracts. So I went in and I met her and I saw this place and I was like, wow, it's a lot to, to yeah. take. And you know, real grassroots, which I worked for a huge organization mm -hmm. with so much money we had to create an institute to, right. you know, lots of things to put the money in to do other good things where this was just this little place. And I said, whatever salary you offer, I'd, I'd take it to work wow. here. So I got the job and uh, that was six years ago. She left and I wow. stayed on. She passed me the keys. Can you tell me really quickly, where is CHIPS located for people mm -hmm. who might need their services? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's in Park Slope. We've mm -hmm. been around for f over 40 years. Yes. We're located on 4th Avenue between Sackett and DeGraw, only mm -hmm. one block from the R train, Union Stop. Mm -hmm. and. Um, Everybody passes by, they see this big mural, and they go, oh, that's Chips. Yes. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> right next okay. to the gas station. Well, I think what you're doing is amazing, and maybe you'll see me in June yeah. coming through <laughs> in the off-season. Anytime, anytime. Thank it's, you so much for being here. Thank you. I appreciate thank you. it. We also want to give a shout-out to some of the other soup kitchens out there. Bed-Stuy Campaign Against Hunger. Visit them at www.bedstuyagainsthunger.com. Mosbia Soup Kitchen Network at www.mosbia.org. Hazan Yeshaya Soup Kitchens, 718-375-5926. Holy Apostle Soup Kitchen, www.holyapostlesoupkitchen.org. Greenpoint Food Pantry and Soup Kitchen, 718-383-5941. And there's the Coney Island Community Thanksgiving Feast. Look it up. Thanks for joining us today. On the next show, we'll have an update on hurricane recovery in Puerto Rico, diversity in museums, and Brooklyn makers. And one final thing, do you want to help Brit pick its newest TV shows? Of course you do. Check out this short video to learn how. This fall, Brick TV is inviting you 
the people of Brooklyn to vote on the pilot that you like the best. So how does this work? Well, voting begins Monday, November 13th at noon and ends on Monday, December 4th. Simply go to the Brick TV YouTube page and click on the Fall 2017 Pilots playlist. Click the like button on your favorite. That's it. Brick TV Fall 2017 Pilots include Passport Control. Oh, it's about being brown. And I have a lot of experience being all kinds of brown. Breaking news. Well, who they're going to be. Jack, stop doing Obama. Smoocher. Have you read the feedback forms lately? No, are they great? No. Oh. Hey, how you doing? Again, a cannoli just feels like a cream puff who went through something. Right. And Deadass TV. <gasps> Voting for your favorite pilots starts on Monday, November 13th. So, so what, what are you waiting, waiting for? Get, Get to, to watching. watching. And, and remember, remember to, to vote. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley Ford, and is produced by Ross Tuttle, Fred Brown, Shireen Bargy, Emily Bogosian, and Kritzi Roberts. Our show is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer and is recorded by our studio technical director, Eric Hagesen. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Lee, and Sasha Mathias. If you want to get in touch, you can leave us a comment, tweet us using the hashtag 112BK, email us at 112BKpodcast at gmail.com, or leave a message at 347-504-0801. And make sure you subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or whichever podcatcher you use. 112BK is part of the Brick Radio family. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org slash radio.